Thanks for tuning in to the Athletic Perspective Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Jorgensen, and in this episode, I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, Graham Tebbett, to talk baseball. Now, I know Graham as a student at the University of Toronto, where he researches head impacts and batting performance in baseball players as part of his master's research. However, Graham also has extensive experience as a pitcher, which culminated into a brief professional career. In this episode, I lean on Graham's vast knowledge and experience as we shine a light on some of the most interesting performance and sports science topics we've covered so far. These include Major League Baseball's obsession with performance metrics and the World Series to the psychology of a pitcher and baseball culture in the U.S. of A. Now don't forget to like, subscribe, and share if you're enjoying our content. Let's get started. Yeah, so welcome, Graham. Uh, we're really excited to have you t- uh, join us today on the podcast. Yeah, it's good to be here. Yeah. So do you want to start by just telling us a little bit about who you are and your background? Sure. Yeah, I could do that. Uh, so I grew up in Mississauga, and I started baseball when I was about 11 years old. Uh, I got into a high-performance program very early, and that propelled me into elite baseball, which took me to, to the States. played four years of college and university ball combined. Came back, played semi-professional baseball, and then I've been uh, traveling to Australia and came back here to do my master's. Great, and you're here with me at the University of Toronto, finishing up your master's, and that's some of what we're gonna be talking about, your research on on head impact exposure and batting performance. So, why baseball? Of all the sports that are available to, you know, Canadian youth, why did you choose baseball? So I started playing baseball uh, actually just because my, my parents got me enrolled in it. They wanted to see uh, if I would like I would take to baseball more than I took to soccer or skiing or swimming. Didn't really catch on for the first year. Uh, I was more picking up dandelions and popping dandelion heads off and you know doing nothing in, in the outfield. But yeah, I think it really started when I uh, I started pitching for this team, um, the local team, and I started doing really well. And so my my dad got me involved in this high performance program. And over two years, I actually gained 20 miles per hour. So I went from throwing uh, actually 58 to 83 miles per hour. And at that time, I was throwing a lot harder than a lot of the, the kids there. Um, I don't know. I, I liked winning. I liked success. So I continued with it. And Yeah. So uh, I'm curious to hear your opinion on this. So one of the best pieces that I've taken away from a conference was from this gentleman who is speaking at Pan X. So Pan-X is the Pan-American Sport and Exercise Research Summit, which was here in Toronto in 2015 uh, when the city hosted the Pan Am Games. And this guy said, every kid should play baseball. It develops many amazing skills, but most importantly, it teaches kids how to lose. <laughs> yeah. And that has been a quote that has stuck with me because I just love it, you know, and I'm curious about your opinion on that. I mean, I absolutely agree, I think. I think the easiest way to kind of explain why it teaches baseball players to deal with failure uh, is to explain why it's hard to be so perfect. So as a hitter, we're always told not to be cliche, that 
but um, hitters will fail 70% of the time, and that will make that will be a um, like a Hall of Fame average, so 300. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think why that's acceptable is because it's uh, it's so hard to make contact with uh, two round objects, being the ball and the the barrel of the bat. Uh, you have to react to the way the ball moves, uh, know whether it's going to be in the strike zone or not, and this often occurs in less than uh, 400 milliseconds, so it's like less than a blink of an eye. Yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, and not only that, but you're hitting the ball into the uh, into the field where there's eight other defenders that could could uh, catch the ball. So right. even if you hit it perfectly, it can still result in an out. And fielding, it's the same thing. It's like split-second split second decision to determine uh, what's the right first move, first step. And if you make that make the wrong decision, then it can result in an error. So this is just what I'm describing is, um, you know, factors that are related to yourself, but you also have eight other guys on the field. And if they don't play perfectly, it only takes a couple guys to lose a ball game, right? Right. And so in either instance, you're dealing with failure a large portion of the time that you play. And so I think it teaches you two things really quickly. It's that you need to be able to control what you can control. Right. And the other thing is that there's just some things that happen that are outside of your control. And that's the term they call it, uh, or they say is, that's baseball. Uh, I remember being a 24-year-old, making a perfect pitch inside to this little 18-year-old, and he hits a bomb off me. And, you know, everyone thought it was funny and stuff, but to me, I was like, okay, well, you know, that's baseball. Like, I made, a, I made a pitch, that kid did a good job of hitting it. And uh, you just move on with it. Right. Really. In the context of what he was saying... You have this idea where every time someone engages in some sort of sport or athletic endeavor that it needs to be about winning, but there's a lot of lessons to be learned in not winning. Yeah. You know, and I like how you mentioned every time you go to bat, you very well might just strike out. Yeah. You know, people could go an entire game without connecting. So if I could touch on that. Yeah. It's you learn uh, how to form an appraisal of your, your failures, right? And what I mean by that is, you learn to accept certain failures if you if you do a lot of things right and then the result isn't what you want. That's baseball. That's baseball. <laughs> yeah. And I think the other thing as well that, that it teaches is getting on your picking daisies in the outfield is, is patience, <laughs> especially for kids. Yeah. Having them be engaged where they might not get too much action out there, you know, teaching them patience. I'm curious, what other values do you think is you know that are involved with baseball that that other sports might not have and and I'll give the example I'll give the example of rugby where very much after competition so after a game the home team typically would make food for the traveling team you would you know if you're like a senior men's club team for example you go and have beers after and that competition is left on the field and it's sportsmanship off the field. So I'm wondering if maybe not so much values, but traditions or, or things like that in baseball. Uh, I mean, I think the one that sticks out to me right away and it's been a topic of conversation in baseball is respect. And you see that with uh, how, like when Bryce Harper first came to the league. Uh, Bryce Harper. Bryce Harper played for the Washington Nationals. Yep. Um, so this like prolific home run hitter as, as a high schooler. And... Uh, I think he bat flipped off of, I don't know, it was Cole Hamels or it was another pitcher. Um, but uh, essentially what you got to take away from this is it was a senior pitcher who'd been around the league for a long time. And they took they took this uh, bat flip or this, what they call it, pimp job as a, when they hit the home run as being a sign of disrespect. 
uh, you learn very quickly that like you have to respect like somebody else who's been in the league for a long period of time and and have this respect for like the other players players that you are are facing and uh, if not just for like the amount of time they play in the league any team can um, really turn you on your head when you're when you're playing they can beat you when he was a uh, team USA they were announcing all the players and they'd come up and say their own names and right. Bryce Harper came up and said you know who I am and then step back and I guess people like love that but at the same time I think it would rub some uh, members of the baseball community the wrong way some teams react differently to it you know That's there's, fair. there's guys that you have or teams that you'll play with that will say you know well we'd love this guy on our team but we would hate we would hate him if we played against him. Like, yeah, yeah. It's the kind of guy that we wouldn't like. Um, and as part of that, just, I guess, forging your identity as a team, you know, if you're that team who has, you know, a bit of, ch- a bit of a chip on your shoulder or just finding, like, where you fit in the league. Yeah, you get all different sorts. I think it's formed by leadership. It's a culture that's formed by leadership. And what that leadership believes is are the qualities that they want their team to have. Right. So we'll face, like, from my own experience, you know, I've faced teams that are, are very chirpy, yippy teams, so the showboating and trying to get in guys' ears, like that's part of their culture, right? Uh, the team I played for in Brantford, the IBL was a bunch of guys who played um, professional baseball and some played big league baseball. And, sorry, the IBL? Oh, so the Intercounty Baseball League. And that's where? Uh, it's all, well, all over Ontario. Okay. Um, we used to play in Ottawa, but Ottawa's taken out of the league. But yeah, so the team that I played for were a bunch of uh, veterans, and you know the mentality that they had was that like, like you play the game the right way. Like we're not too chippy; it's very even keel. And so I think it's more about how that leadership creates that the culture. Yeah. So when did you decide to specialize in baseball? I mean, you mentioned you began or you were signed up for this high performance program. So did that mean you stopped playing other sports? Put the blinders up and said baseball is the focus i think so uh because I, I made these velocity gains so fast and i was always a bigger kid um you know relative to kids my own age yeah i'm a tall guy big guy i think i was six one in grade nine and so i was right around the time that you know people started telling me that i should be focused on baseball and not focus on it right uh and so baseball although i still played other sports baseball was the main focus and honestly, just stuck with that all throughout high school. Following that uh, high performance program, when did you decide that you wanted to play in the States? Well, you know, it's funny. Like, when you get in these high performance programs, they typically are, are telling you that you need to be going to the States. Like, this is if you want to play baseball professionally, that's where you need to go. It's either get signed out of high school or go to the, go to the States and play baseball. Because there isn't um, the same kind of recruiting and scouting that would... Uh, occur in like Ontario as there would be in in the states right and I think part of that's more of like the competition level so like if you're a scout that's trying to evaluate a player and that player is doing really well in Ontario well it's like it really depends on like the the competition they're facing so how do you make that uh, that judgment whether they're ready to be a professional player or not like that's I guess pretty common with professional sports you know if you want to be a professional hockey player probably come to Canada yeah. If you want to be a professional rugby player, you probably go to the UK or maybe New Zealand or South Africa or something, right? What was it like transitioning from baseball culture in Canada to baseball culture in the States? I think that's a good question. Um, to give you a little context, when I was coming out of Canada, I think I was throwing 
upper 80s. So And this, you would have been? Uh, I've been 18 at the time. 18. Yeah. Uh, and so I was throwing 87 to 89 with a really good curveball. And I, I thought I was pretty good. So when I showed up in uh, Tennessee for my first year, my freshman year, I got to the team and realized very quickly that there are nine other guys that are exactly like me. You know, like, you're not anything special when you go away to the States. I don't know whether that's a sheer popular, like a volume thing. I'm, there are a lot of guys uh, south of the border that are are very, very good baseball players. Uh, and so it, it, you know, humbled me very quickly and it made me realize that the amount of work that I was putting in when I was in Canada wasn't nearly enough to be, you know, where I wanted to be, which was a major league baseball player. Right. And so, you know, you started in this, or you got into this high performance program, you started playing higher level, better competition around Ontario, yeah. and then you finished up high school and you realized you wanted to go to the States. So you mentioned Tennessee. So, so tell us a little bit about where you went uh, for that. Uh, this was, uh, this was in Gallatin, Tennessee. Uh, it's 30 minutes outside of Nashville. And uh, it's a junior college called the Volunteer State. So in baseball, it works a little bit differently. If you want to be drafted, right, you have a certain number of years of eligibility. But if you go to a four-year university, you can't be drafted for your uh, freshman or sophomore year, so the first two years. But if you go to a junior college, you're able to get drafted uh, every single year you play. So the idea is that guys will go to the States, play for a junior college to try to get drafted. If not, they can go to like another university. Right. And they'll still have those years of eligibility. Yeah, so you went to this college so you could try and get drafted early and you're not burning up your years of eligibility. Exactly. So then once you finished up at that college, what was next? So things didn't pan out for me the way that I wanted them to. Uh, And, you know, that's a longer story, but uh, I ended up getting... um, a scholarship to go play at Hofstra University, which is a, a Division One university in uh, Long Island. And so, give some context for that around what a Div One or a Division One university is, what it means to play, you know, Division One, and yeah, is there is there like a comparison to to like a league here that that you could explain or it, no? you know, and the thing with baseball is it really depends on whether you're playing in a Northern Conference, Southern Conference east west like it really depends on um the school itself you know like you could play at a northern d1 and it'd be a very good division one school right you like st john's uh which is in new york which is a really good school mm-hmm. um or you go to a d3 in texas and i, I play with a couple guys who are d3 uh, university and they're throwing 93 94 uh which is pretty fast so for context like the average major league fastball is about 92.6 miles per hour right now. And that's gone up quite a bit uh, from 2010. So it, it, it's, it depends, right? It's a, it's a hard question to answer. Uh, but so there's, in, in university baseball, you have uh, divisions one through three. And typically, I think it, it depends on the amount of funding that those programs get. So if division one will have a lot of funding uh, towards their sports programs, whereas D3, their athletes won't get uh, scholarships essentially they don't have that, that kind of funding right and then you have like NAIA and it gets it gets pretty complicated after that after that so you're at this university so tell us about the university I mean I know you went there to play ball but you also went there as a student as well yes. so what program did you take and and how how did you find that experience balancing the whole student athlete life <laughs> it's <was> crazy <laughs> so at at, uh, at university I had we had three-day practices there'd be one in the morning be um 
a lift, like a morning workout. And so they usually that would start about 5.30 a.m. Uh, and then straight from that lift, we'd go to uh, position-specific practices. Uh, should be like for me to be pitcher. And, and then that'd be about an hour. So each one of those were about an hour long. And then after classes, uh, we'd head up to the baseball field and we'd have three hours of BP and conditioning, whatever we need to do. BP? Oh, sorry, batting practice. Okay. Yeah, that's on this lingo. When we when we make a softball team this summer, I'll start dropping that. BP. Yeah. Take we just BP. yeah. We lost that game. We just head out head out to the field for some BP. Get some more cuts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of. <laughs> no idea what any of that means. <laughs> so what what program were you in? Psychology, uh, and it actually really started in uh, Tennessee because uh, the professor I had for intro to psych happened to be the psychologist for the youngest youngest woman on death row, and it was just. Uh, woman Krista Pike and what he was able to do is take our whole class to um, the women's penitentiary in Tennessee and we got to talk to Krista and uh, see what it was really like so just through the interactions with my professor and and this experience really got me into uh, psychology and and wanted to learn more about that. Yeah that's that's cool and something that you've I guess expanded to into your master's research, and as I understand it, your your future pursuits, you still have that that interest in in psychology. Uh, you know, maybe it's geared a little more to sports now that you're in exercise science. So that's, I mean, I think that's an interesting question. I really enjoy psychology, just generally speaking. The reason I like uh, psychology and sport is because as I was going through university and taking these psychology courses, yeah. what I would be doing is learning concepts in class, and then going out to the baseball field and practicing or playing against competition and really trying to apply what I've learned to see how it might fit within like a sports context. And so I think because baseball was such a big part of my life and psychology was like a big interest in my life at that point, I just began to like blend the two. So you'd mentioned that you started pitching and you stuck with it because you saw a lot of growth. It got you to this college, it got you into this university, you're making a lot of progress there, but at, at the beginning, why why pitching? You know, was it just that you were just better at it than other uh, people, or? No, it actually came down to a, a size thing. I think back to it a lot, whether I should have continued with hitting or not. What happened was my first year, I was pitching um, in our fall program, and I was throwing hard, like I said, and I was doing extremely well pitching. So uh, my pitching coach came up to me, or actually our head coach too, uh, and he said, Graham, how do you feel about being drafted off of one inning a game? I was like, well, that coach, that sounds pretty good. And he goes, okay, uh, how many home runs do you think you're going to hit? I'm like, I don't know, five? Like, how do I know? And he goes, that's not good enough, right? And so he's like, I think you should just focus on pitching. And, you know, I think it made a lot of sense, too, though. Some of the guys that I were going, I was going up against at first base were guys my own size, uh, or sorry, my own height, but they would have been bigger, like bigger and stronger guys. And I think that speaks to the culture of baseball in the States. Like it's, it's like profession. It's not, they don't, they don't do it for fun. Like they, I mean, they love it, but they're, it's a lifestyle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They live, breathe and die baseball sometimes. So, uh, yeah. So then I just began to focus on pitching and I, when I came back home to pitch in the uh, intercounty baseball league, I did really well my first year and people started knowing me as a pitcher. So I stuck with it. Which kind of made sense. Yeah, I mean, really, I mean, it was the first time that I really ever uh, had to be just a pitcher because I always used uh, hitting as an outlet when I would do bad pitching. And when I was doing bad hitting, 
I would use pitching as an outlet for that. And so then I had to make this adjustment adjustment to like really deal with like the failure that I would experience and not have that hitting outlet, right? Right. And just go pound pound a baseball. Yeah. Like I had to really just deal with it and then work to be better. So what makes you stand out as a pitcher from others? Mm. Uh, is it is it speed? Is it a particular throw? Or just take me through that a little bit. Uh, so I think that's a really interesting question because for me it was I, my velo, my velocity would be in flux. Uh, so sometimes I'd be throwing hard, so like upper 80s. And in Australia I was touching touching 90. Um, but there there were good portions of, of some seasons where I'd be throwing uh, low low to mid 80s, right? And the saving grace was that. I could throw for I throw a lot of pitches for strikes. So what I mean by that is that I threw a curveball. Uh, it was pretty good. Change up and a sinker. And what I did differently than uh, other pitches pitchers was that I could throw all four of those for strikes consistently. Consistently. Right. Yeah, and that it would be used for different. Um, I had a plan of what I wanted to use those pitches for. So like my sinker, I would use because it has a downward movement on it. Uh, it's like a fastball, but it has a downward movement. I would use that when I got into trouble. So when guys would reach base uh, early, early in the inning, I would throw a sinker to try to get a double play and get two outs, uh, and that worked pretty consistently for me. But things like my curveball would be a strikeout pitch, uh, and changeups I'd use typically against lefties to get them off balance. And so, in combination with a flatter-looking fastball, you can play off those strengths. You mentioned with your sinker that has that sort of downward trajectory. So take us through your I guess repertoire of pitches and give give a quick little description of each okay so my fastball uh, is flat and uh, sometimes fast but flat so from a hitter's perspective it's a little bit easier to hit because you can predict where it's going right it's easier to predict it's flat um, my sinker would have late late movement it wouldn't move a whole lot but it would move downwards and so it would look like my, my forcing fastball but within the last, I don't know, 15 feet, it would start to break downwards. So the, the benefit of that was that as a hitter had started their swing, my sinker would start to move down. So where they their swing was going, the ball is now dropping below that. And then I had a curveball, so my curveball would be a little bit slower, uh, but it would come out flat, and then it would break, I don't know, somewhere three feet, three three or more feet, depending on uh, how well I threw it. Uh, and it was it would go from like a, if you're looking at the hands of a clock, it would go from 12 o'clock to six. Uh, and then on top of that, I would have a, a change up, which would be approximately 10 kilometers or 10 miles per hour slower than my fastball. Uh, and that typically moved to, uh, my arm side. So I'm a right-handed pitcher. So it moved to the right, uh, and it'd be a slower. So typically you'd use that, uh, to against lefties because it would move away from their, uh, where they're standing in the batter's box. So that you use those strategically to get your strikes, get people out. Definitely. Rather and than relying on, on, on speed, it was more of a, a technique game that you played. Yeah, I always loved the strategy of the game. So I, I like putting myself in the hitter's shoes, like being a, a former hitter. I always like thinking you know, what they thought I was going to throw next or what that the pitch that I threw before would look like relative to the one I was about to throw. And so you can pair up these pitches to make, them, uh, make hitters swing at bad pitches or freeze them. So what I mean by that is since my curveball will come out flat and then break in um, like a straight down fashion. What I could do is throw a fastball higher in the zone uh, that's out of the, the hitter zone. It's very hard to hit. And I could throw a curveball that would look like it was coming to the same spot 
and then drop into the strike zone. Or I could throw a fastball in the strike zone and then pair it up with a curveball out that would look like it was gonna be a fastball in the strike zone and break out. So essentially you get uh, hitters to either uh, freeze thinking it was going to be out of the zone or swing at a ball that they thought was going to be a strike. But I did play a lot in my third year. I was uh, written off as being more of a, a reliever for certain situations, uh, in part because this was one of the years that I wasn't, I wasn't throwing hard. And so I went away to the Valley League and I pitched in the Valley League and I did it extremely well. The Valley League? Uh, this is in Virginia. So it's a collegiate summer baseball league where uh, athletes in between their the years of school would go to, to play and this is it's a good like recruiting opportunity and opportunity to get experience so I went there and I did I did really well and I came back to school I had a really good fall and then when I came into my season I did something really stupid and uh, in between these games we had these things called rain delay antics in baseball and you do I think we did like the, the running of the bulls so like one guy would dress up like like pretend like he was a bull and guys would run out and it's just kind of fun for both sides to do this I ended up doing a somersault and I separate my AC joint um, and I don't tell my coach because I don't want him to think that I just did something dumb to jeopardize the team. So I separate my AC joint and it looks like I have one extremely large trap and I try to pitch through it for the season. I end up putting myself in a bad position where I start, I start performing badly and I, don't, I, I lose my opportunity as a starter. So when I, I finish off the season well after my, my shoulder heal and I get passed on the draft. A couple days after the draft, I separate my flexor, or not separate, but tear my flexor tendon. And how long are your seasons at this point? Because I know like the MLB is, is very much like a marathon. Like there's a ton of games yeah. that go so long. Is that sort of the same idea? Well, it differs a little bit, right? So like for college baseball or university baseball, the games are about 56, 55 games. Yeah, okay. So then when I come back, I, I uh, pitch and... And uh, I, tear, I end up tearing my flexor tendon when I'm pitching in the intercounty baseball league, so this is after university. And uh, I remember sitting down and thinking like, okay, there's two options. Like I have to uh, give up and just pursue my career or I take a risk and, and uh, pursue a professional, professional career, like in, in baseball. And I just remember, I remember always hearing guys uh, talk about how they could have they could have done something, but you know they got screwed over by X Y Z, and and it's really hard to separate like who is being absolutely honest and like who's not. Yeah. Um. And so I just I just didn't want to have that kind of story where I said you know I could have done this if if not that, and and so I uh, set out for the next eight months trying to be a professional baseball player. Uh, I recovered from the flexor tendon in injury, and then for the next eight months I spent like. I remember it was three hours a day doing anything that would help me in baseball. So whether that was throwing, lifting, mobility, etc. Like that's what I was doing every single day. Um, and it got to the point where I was even keeping track on my my calendar, like, do this, this, and that. And I remember being full for the whole eight months. So I would go to, to I go to uh, Texas and I, I go to a couple showcases and uh, nothing comes of that. And so. I play in the, the, the inter-county baseball season the following year, put up really good numbers, nothing happens. And I remember at the time I was at my um, person I was dating, so I was, at, I was at their place in North Bay, and I got this text on my phone saying, uh, do you want to play professional baseball? And it was, it was from uh, our general manager on the sem, um, my semi-professional team. I remember texting him back being like, you better not be joking, don't mess with me. <laughs> and he's like, no, 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 call Pat Scalabrine, he wants, like, he, wants to, he wants to come pitch for him. So I call him and Pat said, uh, 
hey, we need you here for tomorrow at, at 2 o'clock. Can you get here? And they were <laughs> located. North Bay. Yeah, from North Bay. They were located in Quebec. So, you know, I didn't even think about how, how far or how long it would take me to get there. I said, absolutely, I'm going to go. And then when I Googled it, I realized it was eight and a half hours away, and we were up at like nine o'clock. So I had to get up at, uh, I think it was like four in the morning, and I drove, I drove seven hours there, and my, uh, the person I was seeing drove the last hour. And I remember showing up, and, and it, was, it, was, it was crazy. Like, there, it, was, it was crazy just to be there. And then uh, to have one of my uh, teammates at the time come up to me and say, hey, like, do you have uni cleats, right? And I'm like, yeah. He goes, all right, well, I got Mitch Moreland's cleats. Uh, he was like, see if they fit. And so Mitch Moreland uh, played for Texas for a long time and Boston. He was a major league baseball player. So I was very familiar with him. Yeah. And these, thing, these things fit like slippers. Like my feet were moving around and they're comfy, but my feet were like sliding around <laughs> these things. Uh, and so I, I, uh, I go out, I go out to pitch and, and like, it's sort of out of like a dream. Like I end up pitching extremely well. Like the first four innings, I don't think I give up any runs. Right. And there's like, like three or four double plays in those, in those four innings. And, uh, the funny thing was that I remember this big, like this giant guy coming up to the plate and I remember like, there's no way I'm going to let this guy have the advantage. And so he gets in, he's got this like big league swag and, uh, I go, okay, well he's like, his head's down. So he wasn't looking at me, but he's in the box. So it's go time. And I'm like, I'm going to throw this pitch. I'm not waiting for him. So I throw this pitch and, and he's not ready for it. So he doesn't swing. And sure enough, like gets into the box in the batter's box again, head up, ready to go. And so I I think like, well, I'm just going to make him wait now. So I wait about four seconds and I'm trying to throw off his tempo and his rhythm. I wait till I think he's about just about to call time. And then I throw a pitch and he puts this like little half swing on it. So I'm, I'm up with two strikes on him and he gets back in the box and I quick pitch him again. So I barely wait, throw a pitch and strike him out. And I come back into the dugout and my coach is like, do you know who that was? He was a major league baseball player. It's Reggie Abercrombie. Like you just struck him out on three fastballs. And I was like, no way. <laughs> Must have felt pretty damn good. Yeah, it felt good. He got me back. But, yeah, it, it, uh, it, it felt really good at the time. And, yeah. And it was just really, it was a big was a dream. Like, I'll be, forever be grateful to have that opportunity. You, you played with that team for how oh, long? Oh, just those two games. That's it? That's it. And they said, I remember walking to Pat's office, the general manager, and he said, you know, like, if we knew you were going to pitch, pitch like this, like, we would have kept you on. Um, and then he gave me... You know, he gave me an opportunity to come back the following year, uh, but I had, uh, tore a meniscus like a couple months before, and so I tried to pitch, and it just wasn't wasn't remotely close to being you know how I was when I got there. So yeah, so then that's when you decided to. Was it just you know I took it as it was like it wasn't it wasn't up for me yet, but I knew I was going into my master's program at that time, and I figured it'd be good to focus on that and and try to train and play professional baseball again. And so tell us a little bit about your transition to the Masters here at University of Toronto then. You still play ball here. Yes. Play for the baseball team. You guys have had a lot of success recently. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, we've come a long way since the first year I got here. Uh, We won the championship in 2017. You know, I was was really happy the way the team gelled together uh, to play here. And I think, like, there's a lot of credit to the guys on our team just being like the good people that they are and everybody like the team cohesiveness was such was so good that I think that's what really made the team work but I think it was, it was really hard for me coming back to uh, coming back to school because I took two years off of, of uh, university 
and uh, it was a big adjustment period for me for the first year and a half, two years. While we're on the subject of professional ball, one of the topics I wanted us to talk about was use of performance metrics. So most people will have come to know about the extent to which these are used in the MLB uh, through the film Moneyball. I don't know about everybody else, but this was the case for me anyway. So I knew very little about the movie or the subject matter involved other than it was a baseball film and had you know Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill, was Aaron Sorkin was one of the writers, so obviously you knew it would be good. So some economists came up or published this in a paper that basically said on-base percentage was a significant predictor of wins, but not a significant predictor of individual player salaries. So what that means is that players who, who draw a lot of walks were very cheap on the market. So Billy Bean, played by Brad Pitt, was the GM of the Oakland Athletics, and he used this theory to help his small market team compete with large market teams by essentially playing Moneyball, finding good valued assets. So that season, the Athletics achieved a record-breaking 20 consecutive wins and a whole bunch of other stuff. So that's, you know, in a nutshell, that's what the movie is. So I want to know your opinion on some of the key performance metrics that are commonly used in the MLB now and to give some insight as, as to why they're important. So things around like batting performance, pitching performance, and any, any relevant or interesting stories you might have around that. What most people will be familiar with are like batting average, which is the number of times you get a hit divided by the number of at-bats you have, uh, and on-base percentage, which is the number of times you reach base, whether it's a walk or a hit, divided by the number of plate appearances. And so plate appearances is a little more inclusive because it includes uh, things like walks and hit-by-pitches and whatnot. Right. Uh, whereas batting or bat or at-bats don't. They don't consider that. It's a null. But a new one that's... Uh, come out in the last couple of years is uh, expected batting average and so they use velocity of the ball off the bat and the trajectory of that ball to determine the probability of that becoming a hit relative to similar uh, like similar hit balls okay right becoming a hit as in like that runner getting to base essentially it not being caught okay Right, yeah, so yeah, like yeah. a ball that was hit at like 100 miles per hour at like a 25 degree launch angle um, would be like a 60 or 70% chance of becoming a hit, right? right? And, yeah. so, and so they predict your batting average based on, on the probability of it becoming a hit, not so much the outcome. Because the thing with baseball is that you could hit a ball very, very hard and it still be, be an out, right? Um, but that doesn't mean that the majority of other balls hit like it wouldn't be a hit. Uh, similarly, like, to contrast that, you could also hit a ball very, very weakly and it'd become a hit. So like a bloop single, a ball that just floats over the infielder's heads and drops into the outfield. Or a ball that's uh, swung on and is like a rolling uh, bunt, essentially. So it's like a little, like a very weakly hit ground ball. And it's at the perfect distance where that fielder doesn't have enough time to make that throw and get you out. Right, um, and so this this is a way around it. So it's looking for hard hit balls, essentially, or well hit balls. Yeah, uh, and I think that's really interesting because you can get not only batting performance out of it, but you can also predict uh, how hard it is to or how hard it is for pitchers to uh, throw something like a no hitter or one hit ball, two hit ball games, and uh, you can evaluate pitchers that way as well. 
right? Right. So the example is like Justin Verlander in uh, this year, so 2019. Justin Verlander. Uh, who plays for the Astros, okay. pitcher. Yep. Uh, and he he threw a no hitter that had a, a probability of it being a no hitter at one one in eight, right? So it doesn't sound like a lot, but when you consider that uh, other no hitters during the same year had anywhere from like a one and 70, one in 70 chance to being a, a no hitter to a one in, I think it was like 250 or one in a thousand chance of being a no hitter. Like you start to understand that the things that he did in that game, like the location where he was throwing, the, uh, the way he patterned his pitches uh, and whatnot, like it was a remarkable performance. And you can evaluate that based on the way the hitters hit the ball. Right. Yeah, and I'll give you an example too. Like there was uh, another pitcher that threw in 2019 that only gave up two hits in his start, and he had a one in eleven thousand chance of throwing a no hitter. But so yeah. the pitching data is based on his in-game pitching data. The batting data it's based on an average that they've accumulated over the past couple of years. Yes. And the statistic is a combination of both. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and so like with someone like Justin Verlander, you also have pitching metrics like. You look at like the walk rate or the the strikeout rate, and I think that's really important, uh, especially being like coming from a pitcher. Like, you can uh, have a very low uh, number of hits given up in a game and still lose that game. Like, I think there's examples of guys losing games who have thrown no hitters. I think there's one example. They haven't allowed a single hit in a game, but they've lost that no hitter because they walked too many batters in the game, and so things like walk rates start to matter. Right. Because once you start putting guys in a scoring position, so by walking you would advance, you know, something like other hitters' bases. Yep. It only takes, you know, a hit to score those runners. Uh, and, you know, mm-hmm. then on the other side of things, like you ideally would like somebody, a pitcher, who can strike out guys fairly frequently because it's just less opportunities, not only for a hit, but for a fielders to make a mistake or for hit, hits to just slip in by chance. You know, talking about batting performance there. Um, I don't know if you remember this, about a month or so ago, uh, you and I were talking about, I think we were talking about like genetics and performance in sport, because I, I was reading The Sports Gene by David Epstein, it's a book uh, that he wrote, and I brought up a story from the book. Uh, David Epstein describes this story where Jenny Finch, a former USA softball pitcher, was constantly able to strike out some of the MLB's best like absolute best hitters so these are these are batters that can you know hit 95 mile per hour fastballs so yet finch's pitches travel you know significantly slower like 30 miles per hour slower and i remember when i when i i mentioned that story you just kind of went oh this one (laughs) (laughs) what what was it that you don't like about it I don't know about. I think Mike Piazza was the guy who, who you were talking, you were referencing. Yeah, there, yeah, there's a couple guys, and I'll I, I'll get into some of the, the details about you know. So where I take issue with it is uh, when Albert Pujols had to hit off Jenny Finch and at the All Star game, and this is just you know I have to put it on. Yeah, yeah. And uh, what I had an issue with was that Albert Pujols didn't didn't go up with a helmet. You know, it was like very much like. Let's see who's better. It's a fun thing. It wasn't supposed to be a competitive thing. I think. Right, because this was like. What it was the All Star? It was an All Star game. I can't softball. remember what it was. I think maybe yeah. Pittsburgh. Okay. Um, and uh, it was she, I think she threw three or four fastballs, and they're all rise or rise balls, I guess, in softball. And he swung at all of them, and all of them are at about his face, his face height. 
Without a helmet. Without a helmet. And, yeah. and from my perspective, it'd be like, well, if you're taking a uh, you know, professional athlete and you, you're putting them in a situation where they need to be competitive... I don't know if they're gonna. It's gonna be the exact same result. Like not to take anything away from Jenny Finch because she's an incredible pitcher, but at the same time, you make these broad generalizations over something in a situation that's not at all competitive. Yeah. You know, like maybe it was for for um, her. Maybe it was maybe maybe it was for him, and I don't know. But um, you know, I just think I don't think it's it's fair to make this comparison and say like, well, softball is better because I heard this a whole lot. Softball's harder, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, you're, you know, you're not comparing the same thing. It's just different. It's It'd different. be like comparing, you know, rugby 15s to rugby 7s or, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, just it's just different. It'll be hard, right? It'd be like you take a softball player and you put him with a baseball pitcher and it's like, well, those balls are going to be moving uh, differently than what they're typically seeing. So yeah, let's yeah. say let's say you know, they were be both being competitive. Well, I mean, there's going to be quite like a big adjustment period for either one because what they typically see isn't going to um, match what they're seeing currently. So like a rise ball versus a curve ball and whatnot. Yeah, and going back to your previous point about as a pitcher trying to get into somebody's head, yeah. you know, throwing a rise ball like that, what you know, that's a perfect oh, way to get into a, a batter's head. Oh, throw me for a loop. Yeah. I mean, I think if I was the hitter, I'd, you know, you think you're very certain about something when you go up to go up to the plate. You're like, I know what I, what I want to hit. And then mm-hmm. let's say you're seeing something that's like, otherworldly as far as you're concerned as a baseball player right the ball moves up you know right so explain how how the pitching would be different well just typically what you see is the ball is going to with softball it's going to start lower towards like the hip and it's going to move well the natural trajectory in order to get to play it's going to be upwards because they do like they do a windmill spin yeah right okay Uh, but baseball is going to be coming from a higher trajectory downwards for the most part and so if you're used to seeing something that is coming from up high, it's, it's going to, I don't know how to explain this, but you're going to perceive it as being much more different than it would, you would think. Yeah, it's just harder to predict. Yeah, so I'll get into some of the details, I guess, about that. Epstein uses this as like a launching point for, for some more examples that he, that he provides as to why that was the case. And, and so to give, give some details or context, so you know, a baseball travels 60 feet from the pitcher's hand to home plate in what would you say for like 400 milliseconds or, or something like yeah, I believe on average 95 miles per hour is 400 milliseconds yeah and, and so research has shown that human reaction time can't account for that you can't react that quick no Pujols uh scored looking at his reaction time compared to a sample of random college students this one study scored him in the 66th percentile so compared to just a random sample of college students. So we know, you know, this world-class hitter, it's not reaction time. No. Right? And we also know this, this interval is too short for the eye to even to track it in, to see the ball, relay the information to the brain, and enable the brain to instruct the muscles to swing. And so I find this example so interesting because it, it suggests that, that major leaguers don't, don't hit by keeping their eyes on the ball, but rather... As you said, or you kind of alluded to, that they swing where they think the ball will be. They use this sort of evaluation by recognizing patterns in, in the way pitchers throw. So what, what ends up happening, or at least the research that I've read, is that your body, in order to make this um, uh, compensation for the lack of time that you have to swing at a ball, 
essentially what it starts to prepare the um, like the ocular motor system so basically what that means is your body is starting to activate the motor systems that would be required to hit this baseball in anticipation of it being let's say a strike right uh, and so you start to move your body in a way and it predicts that it might be a strike so it's gonna even before the ball is released and moves in such a way that as soon as that ball as soon as you recognize whether you want to swing at that is your body's ready to go right away so it minimizes the amount of like uh, delay that that would occur. Yeah, like the latency between that that thought into the action. Exactly. Yeah. So when we look at uh, this in the context of of Finch and the softball pitchers, softball pitchers stand closer to home plate. Yeah. I think about like forty ish feet. That's forty five. Forty five. Yeah. Um, so hitters have about the same time to react to a sixty mile per hour softball as they do to a ninety five mile per hour baseball, but it's a totally different movement. So these patterns they've developed to help them predict where the ball's going to be is totally flipped upside down when it comes to softball. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned a little bit about how you would change up your pitches to play with how the batters would predict your throw to go. What does this look like from a batter's perspective? You know, I've heard different things where if you see red, then you know it's a particular pitch or... Yeah, the dot. You, the you, dot look, the you look at the dot. You know, I think when you and you hear a lot of the stuff that baseball players say, you got to take it with a grain of salt, and this is coming from a baseball player. So you'll hear things like some baseball players will say, oh, I can see the, the, the grip out of the hand. So some people will claim that they can see as the, the ball is released just beside their head, they can actually see what grip that pitcher is throwing, whether it's a fastball, a curveball. Personally, I think it's BS. I don't think anybody can do that. You know what I mean? You hear yeah. uh, MLB baseball players, their Hall of Famers, be like, "Oh, I could see the, I could see the ball hit the bat." And it's like we know that from research that it's not true. So you actually lose sight of the ball within the last ten feet. What you got to realize is that your brain is a very good, uh, almost like a computer. That's it's better than a computer in a sense, but it can recognize patterns very quickly, right? And we needed this evolutionarily speaking so that we could see, let's say, if we saw leaves move in a certain way, we could recognize, okay, that's a, that's a snake. We shouldn't, right. we shouldn't walk that way, right? And so our, our brains have developed this um, unique ability to do that. And so when, you come to, when it comes to pitching, right, if I am throwing the exact same sequence of pitches, so whether it's like fastball, curveball, change, fastball, curveball, change, right? Mm -hmm. The brain can pick that up very quickly right? Because it's the same pattern. So it knows what to expect. It almost, you know, the same way that your body uh, anticipates the movement it needs to make to compensate for that lack of time. Uh, I think your brain does the same thing with the se pitch sequencing. So if it can figure out the pattern that the pitcher is repeating, yep. then it makes it easier for your, your brain to see that ball in a way. So I've, what's been anecdotally, what's been ex how it's been explained to me is that some days the ball will look like baby aspirin. Some days the ball will look like a beach ball, right? Yeah. And what I personally believe in is that when the ball looks like a giant beach ball, it's because they, the pitcher hasn't done enough, a good enough job changing, changing their pattern. So whether that's the pitch sequencing, like what pitch they throw, that's the change of speeds, whether that's their tempo to the plate, like I think all of these things factor in and it almost becomes like you could picture it as an equation, right? Yeah. Like if I threw the exact same pitch in the exact same spot at the exact same speed, that'd be the equivalent of doing like basic algebra, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but when you start 
when you start factoring in, let's say, different timings to the plate, like how I said with uh, Reggie Abercrombie doing quick pitching him and then making him wait and then quick pitching him, right? It's just, it's another variable that your brain has to then figure out. And I think with, when you start changing pitches with speeds and you change the tempo uh, and you even change your routine to the same batter, I think that just makes that equation more and more complex and harder for the brain to predict. What people will often say is that if you can throw two pitches for strikes, right, two good pitches for strikes, you can be a good pitcher in college baseball. If you can th throw three or more pitches for strikes, you can be a good MLB pitcher. I mean, obviously it depends on how fast you're throwing. But, yeah. but at the same time, like, it just speaks to the idea that, you know, if you can do three things really well for strikes, the hitter has to be able to react and predict, like, what pitch is coming. And it's just harder with more pitches. So as a pitcher, you would want to have a plan but not make it seem like you have a plan. Like, almost as though what you're doing is random, but you know to have some sort of strategy to it. Yeah, like, the way I've always seen it is that... that that hitter never doesn't know what I'm what I'm thinking. I'm always one step ahead in that sense. If at least if I'm thinking about it that way, right? Like there is this uh, this uh, hitter Justin Mara, and Justin if, if Justin listens to this, I'm sorry, man, if I mess this up. But I, he either played for Atlanta. No, I'm pretty sure he played for the Cubs, uh, for the Cubs minor league system. And I know this guy's a good hitter. He's a smart hitter, right? And I was facing him in playoffs and my catcher was like inside fastball it's like okay good like i liked you in that so first at bat fastball inside i think he grounded out second at bat, second at bat so second time facing me it's like fastball inside and i was like okay good sticking that plan you know the fastball inside gets him a little bit and then uh, i get him out again third at bat comes around and my catcher goes fastball inside and i was like absolutely not like no way because i know that guy knows the fastball is coming and then, yeah. you know, sometimes catchers will do it. They'll put down the sign again and say, do it. Like, I, I need this pitch. So this is where, as a pitcher, I go, okay, like, I'm pretty sure he's going to swing that back because he's a smart hitter. He knows his fastball is coming. So I put it a little bit farther uh, inside so it's harder to hit. And sure enough, this guy turns on it and pulls a line drive, and I think it hits a car in foul, ter foul territory, right? But, like, you have to recognize these kinds of things where I'm like, you have to be one step ahead. You have to realize that that hitter, he knows what you've been doing, like the way you've been pitching him. And he's yeah. going to predict what you're going to do. And so you have to adjust constantly. Right. So it's interesting, this sort of interaction or balance between pitcher and batter. It's all the strategy and counter strategy, uh, like almost like a game of chess. I was going to say, so I actually grew up playing chess. So I think this is probably why I think that way. You like to game... I love the game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we're going to move on. I want to transition and just chat real quick about the, the World Series and some of our conversations that we had uh, around that. But uh, you mentioned Mike Piazza. So he's one of the players mentioned in, in Ep David Epstein's book, The Sports Gene. Finch uh, struck him out in three straight pitches. So while we're on the subject of Mike Piazza, though he played most notably for the Mets and the Los Angeles Dodgers, he did have a brief stint with the Oakland Athletics, um, which was the team that we talked about in Moneyball. So this is a movie about a general manager who is willing to take certain amount of risks. And just last night, I came across this article. Mike Piazza was talking about how he believes Warren Buffett, uh, you know, business magnet, investor, philanthropist Warren Buffett would make an excellent baseball GM. And, and one of the reasons, it's, it's funny, just one of the reasons he gives is that Buffett isn't afraid 
to to take some risks but also learn from those risks when they turn into mistakes and all of this circles back on my first point of that guy's quote from the conference where baseball teaches kids how to lose and that's so important as we talked about because you need to be able to learn from your mistakes how amazing is that i love that little convoluted no, it was perfect. That's okay. Yeah, it came out. I, it was funny. I was just, it came across last night, so I made a note to mention that. But Anyway, World Series. It's so interesting to see Warren Buffett coaching, though. Right? I would love to be a player on Warren Buffett's team if he ever wants to put a big league team yeah, together. Yeah, guy has like, all the money in the world. He can buy whoever he wants. Private jets everywhere. Right? Coke machines with actual Coke in them. Yeah, it'd be pretty cool. Yeah. I was trying to reference like Moneyball when with David Justice machines. goes, and he was like, He's like, I gotta pay for this? And he's like, welcome to Oakland. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, so um, good. Now, uh, yeah, so talking so talking about the World Series. So, for the game, who did you think would win and why? <sighs> okay. And this is this is exactly why I'm not a Major League Baseball player. But <laughs> I, uh, I, I thought that the Astros were going to win. And I think I, I thought that because... You know, there, there would have been a lot of pressure on Washington to win that game. I, th- I think, you know, from my own personal experience, there's always more pressure on a team that is like their first opportunity. There's a lot more on the line. Like, if Astro, Astros lose that, which they did, like, not a lot of sweat off their back. I mean, everyone would love to win that championship. There's no doubt. But, you know, relative to the pressure that would be on on the Nationals and how much they sh- they would want to win and like are they going to make it there the next year i think that has to be floating around in some of their players minds yeah uh, and i think that was the only the only reason that i said that the the astros would win uh, because they had already been there before and so it was familiar to them yeah because I, I was thinking back i'm like this has kind of been a crazy like 2019 has been kind of crazy for sports you know you have the nationals won the world series yeah. you have the blues won the cup yeah. It was the first time. The Raptors. Raptors won. Won. Twenty nineteen. You're <laughs> first. You know um, actually, so the last six years in baseball, uh, each division has won the World Series. So there's six divisions in baseball and each division has won. Oh really? So it's kinda of just rotated through. Do you yeah. think that's like a good sign of competition in the league? It's got to be. Yeah. Uh, you know, it could just be a fluke, but, I mean, that's it's outstanding, really. Yeah. There's some, yeah, some things, I mean, that's what I love about baseball. There's some things that happen in this sport. You could chalk it up to it being, you know, evenly balanced, but there's something that's just very romantic about the way that, that baseball is played, and I think, like, and the way that things happen in that sport. I mean, this six divisions winning, you know, each division winning is not that big of a deal, but you see things like remember Bo Jackson like came back from his from his uh, injury and his first his first uh, game he hits a bomb off of uh, you know a hall of a future Hall of Fame pitcher just after his mom dies and you see these kinds of things happen like over and over like the the Angels after Tyler Skaggs passed away combined for a no hitter and some of these things like it's you know I want to go back to how unlikely it is to throw a no-hitter. Like, anywhere from, like, Justin Verlander's 1-8 in eight to, like, 1-11,000. in 11, Right. And these things happen just <clears throat> just after significant events occur in, their, like, people's lives. Yeah, it's it's incredible. Like, it, it really is. Mm-hmm. We were watching it. I was, I was at home. You were at home. 
having a couple beers. I was actually, I was at um, Come From Away. Come. I was at a play. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah I was texting you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, I don't know if this adds context to this, or, but that that's funny, because when I messaged you, this was fourth inning, I think? I think it was about the fifth. Fifth? Yeah. And your response to me when I asked who you thought, who you had money on to win, and you said, and I quote, third and fourth time through the batting order, that gets scary. <laughs> Is that like talking to where they start to get down those those patterns or what do you mean? So, I mean, you got to consider a couple of things. One, it's the, you know, the, the last two teams that are in the World Series, right? Like that are playing. So they're the best. You'd assume that they're probably the best. And then on top of that, it's not a regular season game where like you're playing baseball players will play 162 games in a season and that's incredibly tiring and exhausting cuz i think they play they play more than 6 games per week on average over the course of a season and it's a 6 month season so you can it's incredibly busy these hitters are extremely smart and so you know as a pitcher i know that by the first or second at bat for all these hitters like they have a pretty good idea of what that pitcher can and cannot do like can they locate with their fastball are they throwing their off-speed stuff for strikes? And like, if you can eliminate one of those things as a possibility, like let's say they can't throw a curveball for a strike, we're like, okay, that's one less pitcher that I have to worry about. I'm gonna go hunt fastballs. And these guys are so incredibly talented to be MLB players. If they can narrow it down to one or two pitches, like they're gonna get a hit a good percentage of the time, and especially with what was on the line in that game and them being the hitters that they are and how good they are. That's what I meant to Mike was just that, you know, if you're going to see something happen, it's going to happen in the third or fourth at bat when they all know, a pretty, they have a pretty good sense of what's coming. Yeah. And it's, I mean, part of this is just grit and them like locking in. And we saw that actually, <laughs> you know. And then do you remember when I texted you uh, about the Astros after the Astros had that last, uh, I think it was like the eighth inning. Uh, what was it? I'm like, do you want to see a team give up? <laughs> yeah. And, and it's then- just like, it's something that like I could see, I don't I, I don't know if I could explain it, but it's just more of a momentum thing. Yeah. Like when the Nats got that that lead, and I was just like, just looking at the players and the Astros, was like these are going to be some weak at bats coming. Well, it started to really open up, and I think part of that was was they made a pitching change. Mm-hmm. The Nationals had a big hitter coming up, and so the Astros switched pitchers to get a fresh arm out there, and then he ended up nailing a home run. If I was if I was the the manager, what I would be looking for is stuff like signs of fatigue. So I would be looking for uh, a pitcher who is doing stuff that's uncharacteristic of what they normally do. So it's like a pitcher is really good at locating lower in the zone, the strike zone. So like towards the knees, which is typically harder to hit. If I started seeing that pitcher then throw balls that were up at the head or like head height mm-hmm. or up in the zone, I would start to be a little more concerned because that would be, to me, suggestive of that that pitcher being fatigued and we know that if you're more fatigued your ability to be precise is going to be you're less you know, you're less consistent exactly There's greater margin for error exactly so you got to make that decision at that point and and you know you want to trust that pitcher that pitcher can work through you know i think that's a pretty common thing to think but you know once you make that decision you switch over you really can't judge the outcome of of what happens when you've made that decision because the guy I decided to put into pitch didn't work out and it's like well you don't know if the guy who you would have left in would have done well either that's true right confirmation bias exactly yeah and uh and so i think that's the hard thing about baseball is that you can make the decision i think it'd be an absolutely right decision but you go to a guy and 
for whatever reason, he doesn't have the stuff that you typically see, and it just doesn't work in your favor. And that's when we come back to saying, you know, like, that's baseball. And it's unfortunate that that, that kind of thing happens in, you know, one of the most crucial games that they're going to play that year. Yeah, so we're going to transition now from talking about the World Series just into some of your own research. Sure. Uh, do you mind if I actually tell the story about how I got interested in it? Absolutely. I think it provides yeah, go some good context. I've been, playing, I've been playing baseball for a long time now, and in 2015, I had an opportunity to go pitch in Australia. And when I, in my first game, I threw a pitch that was uh, redirected by the hitter's bat, and it hit my catcher in the mask. Uh, and so, you know, none of us really thought anything of it at the time because these things were called foul tip impacts. They happen, you know, often, and, and no one, we never really thought about it as being like potentially harmful to a catcher's health. Uh, but the next day when I woke up, uh, my roommate, who was also my catcher at the time, was complaining of concussion symptoms. I couldn't get out of bed. He had low energy and he was really sensitive to light. I started talking to Chet, uh, my catcher, and he said you know, like, that he had four prior concussions. And I started wondering if these head impacts were occurring often. And so when I got to U of T to do my master's, I looked into the literature on it. And it turns out that you know catchers are significantly overrepresented with diagnosed concussions like compared to the other eight positions and that foul tip impacts actually cause a large proportion of those injuries. So I began to wonder how often they're hit in the head and comes to my study. Well, I started to try to describe uh, foul tip impacts to catchers and like how often it happened at what speeds, what factors may have influenced that. And also if uh, those head impacts uh, led to like a decrease in performance. And so you use video analysis to explore that? Uh, yeah, I watched uh, 648 baseball games. How many of those had you already watched anyway? None. Well, no, none, actually. <laughs> so normally, like, I would only watch the Blue Jays, but my, and my sample was from the American League East. But when I watched uh, or the season that I decided to watch, the Blue Jays actually had a number of injuries, and so a lot of their catchers had a lower number of, of games started i mean they had five catchers on the team and the rest of the teams had like three right so it's a bit of an anomaly yeah it's just one thing so I've, i didn't watch actually i didn't watch the blue jays games and those would have been the some of the few games that i would have watched so what season was that 2017 right so of all the areas of baseball and sport and performance that you could have studied i know you gave a little bit of background into what led to this but you know why this one well i mean the, the catcher was the what sparked the idea, but when I was reading the research, you know, a lot of studies that are done on concussions are done with football players, right? And the collisions uh, between, you know, one or more of these, these players. And I, I think the problem that I saw with it was that they're very complicated impacts, right? Like they, they can involve multiple players of different masses moving at different speeds. They can involve more than one player uh, and they can involve like the, cat, uh, the, the football player hitting the ground as well. So then you have to factor in well, is it the impact between players, multiple players, uh, different masses, the ground. Like what what exactly do you do you measure, right? Yeah, like it's, to narrow it down, just the sheer biomechanics of it. Yeah, and we don't have the benefit of being able to do any scans like of their brain, or do any sort of like uh, clinical testing right after these impacts. Right. Right, like you can if they report symptoms, but for the most part, you know, it requires that athlete to then say, oh, I, you know, I'm experiencing some sort of concussion-like symptoms. And sometimes these things take as long as 24 hours to, to manifest. So 
you know, I think that's the, the complicated thing about looking at football. And I saw baseball as being a more controlled environment, especially with catchers. So you look at catchers who are situated right behind the plate. They don't move. Uh, when the foul tip impact occurs, it, it's so quickly. It happens so fast, and the catcher's so close to the batter that they don't really even have time to react or blank. Right. Right. They just get hit in the face. And so the thing is that that ball is always you know, same, same mass, right? That catcher is being, um, isn't moving. So you don't have to factor in like, uh, different, different directions of movement and how the brain would react to that inside the skull. The catcher doesn't typically, they wouldn't fall over. Yeah. So you don't have to worry about impact on the ground. It's just, there's less things that you have to worry about and that the number of head impacts that catchers sustain per year related to the number of concussions they sustain is extremely small compared to the number of head impacts that football players will sustain over a year. And and so, you know, the question is like, do you get more information looking at uh, the controlled environment of a catcher, right? Is it, would it lead to... Just greater insight. Greater insight, yeah. yeah. And, and, and hopefully, you're not going to get the full story, but hopefully you get some sort of idea of what might be the main mechanism of injury or what may be the main thing that leads to a concussion by looking at a controlled, more controlled environment. And, and so you mentioned uh, foul tip impacts as one example of these type of impacts, I guess, that, mm-hmm. that catchers can, can experience. What, what are the other ones? So a hitter's backswing uh, is another thing. So it's when the hitter is following through with their swing. Sometimes their bat would collide with the uh, catcher's head. And I would say just from, well, experience as a baseball player and through my observation, I didn't see that occurring a lot. Right. You know, it, they would happen for sure, but they they weren't happening as often as foul tip impacts. Right. So that's one example of them. Another one would be if a catcher is then going up to the plate or let's say a hitter is going up to the plate, like uh, every once in a while a pitcher might release a pitch that hits them in the head. And that's another form. Um, and let's say they're running the bases and they have to – uh, so break up a double play, meaning that they have to slide into the base at, at second to try to take out the fielder who is taking the ball from second and throwing it to first. Uh, sometimes you could collide with like a hitter's knee or body, and that might cause a concussion as well. Yeah. So what did you find? Uh, so I found that in 648 games that uh, there were 172 impacts. Roughly about, if you average it out over all the games, it's one head impact every four games, which doesn't sound like a lot. But what I also found is that, that uh, the frequency of these head impacts really depends on how many times they're exposed to a pitch being thrown. And depending on the month of the season, it might that frequency might rise as much as like one in over three games compared to like slower months like June and July that were one in six, one in seven games. Right, so and it's so, a little variable. Yeah, it, it just provides more insight into how like how this frequency may differ over shorter intervals of time because when you look at the frequency over a long period you know it's easy to think well one in four games isn't a whole lot but there are several examples of catchers who are hit like 10 times in 13 days or six times in five and often these speeds were around 95 to you know 98 miles per hour to 100 in some cases yeah and so one thing we had been talking about before is how often these catchers get checked out for injuries mm-hmm. following these these head impacts. 
So do you want to speak a little bit about that? Yeah, and I just want to say first before I, I uh, get going on this that uh, I think it's, you know, there are a lot of factors that uh, come into play when it comes to medical evaluations. Like speaking from experience, you have 25 guys on a team. Mm-hmm. Uh, athletic trainers might be treating some guys during the game. And so they might not see some of these impacts or their view might be obstructed. But in the 172 impacts that I observed, there were only four instances where uh, an athletic trainer actually came out onto the field. And so I wanted to get a little more insight into what was influencing their decisions to evaluate. Uh, And so I looked at the number of head impacts over the previous seven days. I looked at uh, the speed of the head impacts that were evaluated compared to the ones that, that were not. And I looked at uh, games with more than one head impact in them and see if that influenced anything. And essentially what I found was that uh, these decisions didn't seem to be based on any of those uh, things. So there were 17 games with more than one head impact. Some games had as many as three. Uh, and I know in a couple examples, they were 95 to 100 miles per hour for all three impacts. Right. Uh, and none of those resulted in a medical, on-field medical attention. And, I, and this is from experience, like anecdotally, like I, th- I thought this might be the case because I think a lot of uh, things, that, one of the factors that influences that decision to evaluate a catcher is really their, their reaction to being hit in the head. And quite often what you would see is a catcher look over to the dugout after they're hit and go, no, no, I'm fine. Put their hand up, say, I'm good, stop. Right. And so I think like the hard thing about it is if we're not tracking uh, this kind of like quantitative information, then these decisions, they don't seem to be informed by something that we can measure. They right. seem to be measured by how the athletic trainer perceives the severity if they see it or if that catcher thinks they're hurt. Yeah, so you're leaving the decision in the hands of a player who, who has, wants to play. Who wants to play. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's the, the unfortunate thing about baseball is that, you know, it's not like like football or basketball, you can be sidelined for a sec to be evaluated and then put back into the game. Like once you're removed for that evaluation, you're you're done. Like you can't play for the rest of the game. And um, in situations where the team needs or the catcher perceives uh, that their team needs them to play, like they're going to be less likely to do it. And uh, on average, 6.25 games per week over six months. Are you looking to continue doing this research? Yeah, so ideally what I would want to do is look at, do the same study with a comparison group of catchers who had concussion. What I was left with at the end of this study was, you know, this overwhelming question. It's like, well, what's the difference between uh, the head impacts that catchers with concussion sustain versus catchers who aren't? Specifically, that question came up because the speed of head impacts and the number of head impacts that occurred were very similar, or at least the speed of head impacts were very similar to the ones that have caused concussion. So the, the next question that comes up is, what's the difference in, let's say, head, head impact frequency or, or even the speed of head impact for people who were concussed? Because there's a possibility that they were hit on average at a higher speed. And looking at that in such a controlled environment, you can start to get some pretty interesting, or hopefully, some good insight into what causes concussions. Exactly. Yeah, so thanks for sharing your research and giving us some insight into uh, foul tip impacts and your experience as a, as a baseball player. I really appreciate you coming on and, and chatting about your experiences, so, so thank you. We're very grateful for that. Yeah, it's been great. 
just wondering if you had any any concluding thoughts, maybe something that we didn't get to that you wanted to talk about, a story or anything, and if not, then we, we can wrap it up. I've got uh, maybe two stories. Uh, game that I went to, uh, my first professional game that I played was a doubleheader, and so I pitched the first game, and then in between those two games we had, uh, I think it was like a, like a cowboy night or a western theme, and uh, we had a one of the guys on our team, this guy, uh, Clint Sams, who is this absolute massive human being. Like, I'm, I'm a big guy, 6'5", 225. He's about, you know, but like another, uh, let's say, half a foot wider than I am. Like, he's, he's yeah. broad. He's a broad dude. He's very big strong. Uh, and so we had, we had him race a horse around the bases. <laughs> which, you know, I'm like, he's going to get beat. He's going to get skunked. Uh, but... This guy was so fast that I think he lost by like 25 milliseconds. So he ran the bases. So they did two separate. So they had a, the, um, both started at a standstill. And the horse started and went around and then Killian ran around. I getcha. Yeah. The other one, um, if I could just describe this to anyone in Canada, <clears throat> just to give you an idea of what ball is like in the States. Uh, we played the University of Oklahoma in 2013 and this is you know my, my first big d1 experience and i remember when we went driving into towards the park we had to go through their campus and there, this campus is enormous and i remember the sun was setting it was just picturesque scene to any like any movie yeah right and it was, you, like to the point where you get chills right as a baseball player it's just like i don't know how to describe it our bus pulls in they've got this jumbotron in left field and they've, they're throwing their highlight reel up. It's like a like a montage video of like their coach giving this motivational speech, and their players making highlight reel catches like Sports Center. And I'm like, this is intense, right? So we get to this park, and it's outstanding. But nothing could have prepared me for like the next day. So when we competed, we faced uh, Jonathan Gray, uh, who is a pitcher in the major leagues right now. And when we faced him, he was who does he play for? I think it was Colorado. I don't okay. want to make a mistake there but yeah he's throwing uh 97 to 100 miles an hour and they have this radar gun Jeez. so we can see it and uh, this is the greatest baseball player they've ever seen right and the cool thing was that when he'd strike guys out we had they had fans there that were just sitting they go left right left right and they'd be saying that to like the pattern of uh which foot you're stepping with so when guys would strike out they would just Go left, right, left, right on your walk back to the dugout, right? <laughs> uh, and so there's two things that are kind of cool about it. Is one, this guy Joe Perez, who's our third baseman at the time, struck out, and he's all pissed off about it. And they're doing left, right, left, and so he tries to trip him up by doing like a stutter step, and and they go left, right, left, like they're <laughs> on point with it, like they got it so perfect. And I thought that was really cool. And then I remember seeing uh, our outfield, our left, right fielder, I think. Kenny Jackson going up against uh, Jonathan Gray and seeing Jonathan Gray throw up 100 miles per hour on the radar gun thinking, this is the best pitcher I've ever seen. This is the best baseball player I've ever seen. So like, sure enough, that at bat, Kenny Jackson comes up and hits a home run on a 100-mile-an-hour fastball, and it shifted immediately from going, Jonathan Gray is the best player I've ever seen to Kenny Jackson is the best baseball player I've ever seen. <laughs> and I think that was just like the coolest experience I think I've ever had in baseball. That's cool. Yeah, and I didn't even do anything. Like, I was just sitting there watching. So, my concluding thought, 
what was it like coming back to Canada? Honestly, I think I think the the best way for you to for anybody in Canada to understand how how good the baseball is down there, and this only really speaks to half of it is is uh, watch a college baseball or university baseball game down there. If you go see watch the SEC, Big Ten, anything like that, like you'll get a pretty good idea of what to expect. But it you know if without seeing that, it's like trying to explain. It's like if you took a fish from the ocean, you put it in a pond, and you tried to explain to every fish in that pond like how big a whale is or how big the ocean is. It's hard to imagine, you know, and really get really get absolutely correct about what to expect. Yeah, you like wouldn't even be able to grasp like the sheer scale of it. Exactly, and yeah. and and that's exactly what I found when I went there. And like I, every time I went across the states to play baseball, there's always something crazy that I was seeing. There's 16 years old. There's a kid who's throwing 94. And the fastest kid in our team was like 86 miles per hour. And that same kid who threw 394 came up to face the fastest pitcher in our team and hit a home run off him too. And it's like, you know, like we thought he was a good pitcher, but he's also a great hitter too. And you have to work super hard to get that. Yeah. Um, the biggest thing for me is what I've been trying to explain to uh, the kids that I'm coaching here, or the kids that I'm playing with here, like, what it takes to be a good player and in part they write it off because they see the product I am now right this like highly refined pitcher right um but I mean I can I can safely say that you know for a long time and you know even as recent as a couple of years ago like I I wouldn't be throwing very hard you know there were a lot of ups and downs and stuff and it, and there was always one moment uh before I really broke out that, that would stand out and it was just really going in and, and, and you do above and beyond the amount of work that you think you have to do. Like you spend the time uh, that like let's say a Major League Baseball, you imagine a Major League Baseball player would, would do. And it's devoting yourself to the game and really enjoying it. And you know, any kids that are wanting to go to the States and play any sport in the States, I would say like um, the biggest thing for me was like if you focus on your school, you get everything that you need to be. You need to get done done like going to practice and playing those games feels more like a vacation than it does like you're not stressed out about any assignments that are due like anything that's really divert your attention away you're not thinking about that you're loving the game that you're playing you know the game that you fell in love with yeah and i think that's an important takeaway for uh really anybody is like i know schools can suck sometimes you know speaking as a master's student in here but you know if you Mm -hmm. handle that stuff before you go to play the game like you're gonna love the game so much more yeah that's great insight well thank you yeah it was a pleasure man enjoyed it thank you for tuning in to the athletic perspective podcast check us out online via our website athleticperspective.com again that's athleticperspective all one word dot com or on social media instagram twitter facebook whatever give us a like give us a follow subscribe whatever you prefer We have some great guests, some great content lined up, so stay tuned for more.